Hey everybody, welcome to Outspoken. I'm your host, Justin White. This is episode 73. Uh, My guest this week is another friend of my brother's. Uh, I should take a moment to thank my brother. I'm very grateful to him for all the guests that he has connected me to. Um, And I'm really grateful to have these conversations with so many awesome people that I otherwise might not know. So thank you, my brother. Um, So my guest is Maria Crane. She is an exceptional painter. I will give you links to look at her work uh, at the end. It is truly something to behold. I strongly recommend you check it out. But uh, before we get into the conversation that Maria and I had, I'd like you to listen to the conversation that my spoon had with the countertop after I stirred my coffee the other morning. I just want to watch for a minute and see what our various, what our sound waves look like. Absolutely. Can you see on your end how there's a little... Yeah. Okay. Definitely. It's actually quite cool. I like to have that visual feedback immediately. Me too. It's super satisfying. It's very beautiful, actually. It has its own, like, very elegant sort of experience. It's awesome. It's true. And every single conversation would be different. Yeah. I mean, have you ever printed up um, the sort of you know, the actual physical byproduct of a conversation. I haven't, but I like the idea. It would be like right? an EKG. Yeah, completely. But like an EKG of a thought. Right. That's exactly. extraordinary. It's an EKG of a thought or an EEG. Or, or of lots of thoughts. Of lots of thoughts encoded into something that we hope is analytical, but actually really isn't. So, oh my God, I had the most extraordinary day today because I have this neuroscientist in my house, this developer who's obsessed with many technological things, including climate change. So the neuroscientist and I have been talking about like the analyticity of language and superstition and anthropomorphism and how that's so fundamental to our consciousness. And then my friend who's a poet came in and he brought in this guy who's a barber and a Shakespearean scholar and an actor and is also deeply interested in religious studies. And so we had this whole like explosive array of minds all in the studio. And I was just painting all day with these these people in the background. It was really wonderful. It was one of those like very perfect studio moments where I thanked all the gods that I'm no longer afraid of having people watch me work and make a disaster of my painting. I was about to ask if that's difficult for you to do, to have people right, right near you while you're doing it. That would be impossible. H- highly unnerving sometimes. Okay. Depends but- on uh, what's at stake, really. <laughs> What What is at stake or what could be? Well, I mean, I think like maybe deadlines, like if you're under a lot of pressure and you know, you just need to operate without anybody interfering. Um, uh, I don't know, whatever, whatever sort of emotions come in. I mean, certainly like the person commissioning the work, I would 
just maybe lose my mind if they were sitting behind me as I was working through all of these like multitudes of errors before I land on something that feels right. That makes sense. You know, that would make me my I think weirdo would, friends <laughs> who are reciting, you know, reciting pieces of the plays that I am like reciting pieces of the text that I'm actually working to interpret while I'm working on it. And, and, and we're talking about the sort of like nuance of the gestures and the figures as it relates to the text and the textual analysis. And yeah, I mean, it's really extraordinary when you get to do something like that. It's, it's. That so sounds fun. really cool. Yeah. So do you want to talk about that, your current project? Yeah, totally. You know, I'm just kind of like a very happy painting robot recluse professional daydreamer at the moment and working on a set of paintings based on Shakespeare. It's a site-specific installation for a theater and it's an enormous amount of work and I have a relatively very tight schedule, particularly given the size of the paintings. And yeah, I've just, I've just been completely engrossed in kind of like months of production and pre-production and research and reading and uh, discussion and like mulling over how to bring some of these plays and their ideas to life. And, you know, what's been really interesting is not so much illustrating a scene from the play, but kind of distilling it and giving my sense of the total emotional thrust of the play, which is a completely different process. Yeah. Is it, is the interpretation entirely up to you? Yeah. I've been given an enormous amount of creative freedom. And yet I would say that um, the collaborative process and, and the discussion and the editing back and forth has also been really beautiful and, and, and I've been really welcoming it because I, I think, you know, it, at least from what I feel, there's an enormous amount of mutual respect on both ends and, and um, it's, been, it's been a really beautiful experience. Nice. That's really cool. And what's the name of the theater? That I can't tell you yet. I am sadly going to just be, you know, under wraps for the next few months still, which leaves me in an even funnier kind of contained hallucinatory pressure cooker of my imagination. You know, I can't even like release it on Instagram. I'm just kind of like in my zone, which luckily is truly a sanctuary um, cooking up all of this work. I think that's really cool, actually. I think that's maybe the best way to work when it's... Sworn to secrecy. (laughs) Yeah, and just totally insulated, you know? Yeah. I mean, the influences that you're getting are the ones that you choose, I I would would imagine. Yeah, that too, that too. And I've been, you know, through the process, because it's such a challenging project, and I do have, you know, consistently I have like 12 to 14-hour work days, and um, I've been pretty careful about what sort of, permeates the borders of my home and studio um and and I'm I feel like I've just been really lucky in that the people who do come through have been very much like the group of people today just the conversation is always on point it's always really interesting um there's always just like a beautiful repartee and I get to work while I'm hanging out 
Is it so you can talk, you can be a part of the conversation and paint at the same time? And yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Like I need kind of... like a reprieve at some point. You know, I do get pretty stir crazy in here and it's it's kind of like a sport in a way. You know, it's sort of like an athletic practice. You really just show up and like do all those plies at the bar or whatever. But um, being able to to talk to people for at least a little while every few days while I'm working is really fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. Are there parts that completely lose it? (laughs) Right. As as would anyone. Yeah. Are there parts of today's uh, conversation that, that you remember that stand out as like things that made it into the painting or made it into your emotional, you know, sort of, well, I, I'm just curious about how your how your brain works when it comes to conveying through the image, you know, an emotional content or or intellectual content. Oh, you know, I try to just absorb a lot, and then I leave it. I, I really do these days leave it to my intuition on so many levels. In fact, you know, I just kind of have notes around the studio as well, so I don't get confused. Sort of about. I mean, not really literally, but like I have to stop thinking like the last time I spend sort of like thinking and processing these things rationally, or at least at this moment of the process, probably the better, because the more time I spend in flow state, allowing my intuition to just run with these things, the better it is. I mean, at this point in the process, I'm in a place where um I'm not illustrating anything. I'm not working with things literally. So the emotions that I pick up, I don't need to translate them into something that's literally accessible. I just try to kind of pour them into the collective pot of um, imagined things and intuitions and premonitions and mythologies and hallucinations and just hope that they kind of make their way into the work somehow nice yeah and did you read a bunch of shakespeare leading up oh to my it God, so, yeah so much i mean you know I've, I've had a bunch of it like i had some things even memorized probably since high school um really and i did and i did yeah and i did read a fair amount of it um you know particularly some things from hamlet a few sonnets some other of the soliloquies uh, you know most it was mostly like hamlet and macbeth and i mean it, it was wonderful that we got to you know, that I got to play with this, these themes in particular, because they're just so rich, you know, in their, in their human and dramatic content. There's just so much to work with there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and will the work be similar to your, to the, I mean, I looked at some of, I looked at everything on your website. It's beautiful, by the way. You're incredibly, incredibly talented. Um, and so will it be figurative and, and sort of of that same style? Um, yes. Or are you not allowed to talk about that? No, no, it's, it's definitely, I mean, it's certainly my work. So it's, um, it's definitely a continuation of what I'm doing. Um, and can you describe briefly what that is without it being boring? Without it yeah, I, I, you know, I paint about the human experience really in whatever form that comes in. And I'm inspired by kind of equal parts at this point, the old masters and contemporary painting. So 
I would say a lot of my work sort of takes on a feeling of Baroque imagery with a contemporary twist, which is kind of a vulgarized way to put it. But I think that does give an audience some sense of what's going on. I think so. I think. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not academically trained. Like I have training in drawing. I don't have any training in painting. I just have, really? you know, I watched some people work and yeah, you know, my education isn't something completely different. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty polymathic and somewhat haphazard and basically a lot of it is unfinished. But um, I think, you know, at this point I'm not so much a generalist because I do spend most of my time in one activity, which is painting. But in terms of the ideas that I'm interested in, um, you know, I am a generalist because I just, I've just dabbled in a lot of different things. I mean, so in high school, I was mostly interested in math and science. And during that time, my mom, who's a classical pianist, she actually decided she wanted to go get her PhD in neuroscience. And so she started studying the brain, the mind, the way that we perceive music. Ultimately, that's what she's really interested in is, is um, that type of cognition and how music is sort of like an emotional encoding that can give us um, an interesting lens into the nature of consciousness and all of these things I just find so fascinating. And then um, I studied drawing for one year, very academically and after high school. And then I got really bored doing that, to be honest. And I went yeah. to university and I, and I was going to do a double major in math and philosophy. Um, and then just something sort of clicked in my mind and I, and I figured, you know, if I wanted to be a painter, it was sort of now or never. Um, and yeah, I left and started painting and watching other people work and, uh, you know, finding whatever mentors I could in that capacity. Nice. Did you go immediately to oil or did you start? Yeah. 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 And have you always, you've just stayed there? Yeah. Yeah. I like it when things dry slowly. I pour a lot of clove oil into my medium, you know, for whoever out there that paints, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Like I, you know, sometimes I accidentally pour so much. I'm like, really? Four days later, still wet? Awesome. <laughs> so you, you like to keep layering and, and coming back to it? and I do. I do work in a lot of layers. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's hard to believe you're not classically trained because you're, because the, your ability is off the charts. Thank I mean, you. I did get obsessed with it. Yeah. I mean, did yeah. Did you get obsessed with of, hands and with, with I got with obsessed you? with all of it, really. I think I just right. got like really possessed by it because also like the last 10 years just sort of like went by in this obsession and it's been amazing. And I look back and I'm like, wow, that really, like this person was really possessed. You must have been to, to come that far uh, that quickly. And I mean, we were saying just before we started that you, or you were saying that you still notice improvement in, in real time. Uh, yeah. Awesome. It's pretty wonderful. It's yeah, great. It's, it's great wonderful. that you get to spend so much of your day doing it. Yeah. And then it's great when like other people stop in and I don't feel completely insane. <laughs> <laughs> are you, are, do you, Generally speaking, do you get, do you feel emotionally charged by 
whatever it is that you're working on? Like, does it, does, is there a yeah. correlation between what you're putting on the canvas and what's going on in your, in your head? Oh, uh, well, it's a little bit like acting, I think. I mean, sometimes okay. it's, te- it's just technical. Sometimes it's just like grunt work. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just like bringing things to a high finish. Sometimes it's something in between. Sometimes, I mean, your mind is just like meandering and you're wandering and I'm like looking for the image and trying to find it. But I think mostly when I start working with the expression in the faces, in the way that some of these characters are really interacting and if I'm trying to bring out, you know, kind of like the deep like empathy that these people are sharing amongst all of the chaos of either the narrative or the painting or whatever, that's when it gets really interesting. I mean, some of these are over life size. In fact, just about all of them are, and I'm coming up there and I'm, and I'm, and I'm working through like the details and intricacies of the expression. And sometimes I feel like I'm touching another human being and wow. it's so bizarre. And, and it brings up all the memory of the text. And I feel like I can't really bring the expression out in the person I'm painting unless I feel it in my own body. And that's how I've always thought about how you bring something to life and how you make something look and feel alive is you have to kind of filter it through your own physical experience. It's kind of like mirror neurons and in, in our brain in that when we see someone doing an action, we have like an equal empathic, physiological neurobiological response to that that is like an internal neurological mimicry of the thing that we're seeing and that's kind of what's happening to me like when i'm really digging into the feeling of the characters particularly when i'm working with the expression of their faces it can be a really intense experience it's very it much like- acting out the play and then thinking about your life within that capacity as well and, and i don't have any acting background or anything but I did um I did end up sitting in on a really extraordinary acting class that actually just like blew my mind when I was doing research for this project it made me it just gave me so much more respect for that craft. That's cool. Well, I can attest to just, you know, if I'm drawing little stick figurey type sketches and I'm drawing the face of that sketch, I'm I have a feeling that I'm making that face as I'm drawing, you know, like I really, I think it happens on, on any level, you know, it doesn't have to be super refined and realistic for, for your brain to want to sort of just interpret it the same. Oh, oh, this guy's sad. I'm, I'm frowning as I draw his face. Oh, Um, absolutely. But I can imagine if it's as realistic as your paintings are that you're actually, you're sort of taken to that place. And that's really cool. It's really cool to think about that you could make something look so real that you're suddenly believing that that person is right there with you. Yeah. And I wonder if I'm even making it look so real. I think it's just for me at that moment, it feels really real because I'm like my face is making the same expression as the face that I'm trying to paint almost. I don't know. It's it's (laughs) that probably feeds the brain as well crazy loop yeah it's a crazy loop it's wild do you are you someone would you consider yourself an empath uh, in general like do you because i because i think that the mirror the neuron mirroring that you're talking about probably happens in the brain with everyone but it may not 
translate to the emotional center for everyone. I wonder, you know, I mean, it's called an autistic spectrum, which probably means we're all on it to some extent (laughs) or an empathic spectrum. So we're all on it to some extent. I mean, I think like, I think we're all empaths. Yeah, I I think so too. But a lot of people either tuned out through, you know, conscious means or subconscious means they're just not as tapped in to to that feeling to what it brings you know yeah i mean i, mean, I think there's also context right yeah sociopaths no you're right i mean there are certainly like brain pathologies that make you incapable of of tuning into that like your antenna is just screwed but if you, but even like if you start as sociopaths at one end of the spectrum and start moving to the other end, there's someone at every stage of that, everywhere on that line, right? So there's just like a, there must just be a vast difference in the way people experience emotion in general, but but specifically other people's emotions. Yeah, absolutely. I was so so Misha, my neuroscientist friend, and I were just kind of talking about. Um, you know, how few basic emotions we all share, but yet how incredibly nuanced our individual experience is. And we were just kind of bouncing back and forth our feelings about this in that, you know, in a way, we're probably experiencing something very, very similar, you know, if, if like assuming pretty similar, like, neurological configurations and like assuming that the you know like excluding extreme pathologies like we sort of just have the illusion or delusion of like radically individual experience and yet the radically individual experience is so it feels so salient it's so powerful it's so overwhelming you know there's no way that we could ever really let go of the sense of self and yet we're all experiencing like a kind of combinatorics of a pretty small number of like baseline emotional slots elements right anger sadness happiness joy like or whatever love i don't know yeah, that's totally true. But it's the it's our whole history that we carry with us that flavors that each time it happens, right? And we feed yeah. it into our yeah. We have this like set. Yeah, we have this like set of emotional archetypes, and then the nuance that comes out of that actually feels limitless somehow. Right. It's. I think I think it is, but but it's also when you compare it to another, I mean, I'm sure, like you say, if you like the brain, what's happening inside the brain is probably not all that different, but it's couldn't possibly be conveyed through our emotional experience, one person to another without some of that being lost or misinterpreted or, you know, because it goes through the other person's set of filters and becomes a different experience. Right. Moreover, it goes through the filter of language, which is the thing that allows us to collaborate and build the world that we've built and yet at the same time is utterly isolating in that you know its analytical component is really specific to you know 
this is like a Wittgensteinian thing, right? Like propositions of natural science, the cup is on the table, like that's analytical, but everything beyond that is extremely fluid and ambiguous. And that's where all the good stuff is, right? You climb up the ladder into then a space where like nothing is hierarchical. Um, and there's so much more ambiguity and that's where all the beauty and poetry and art lies. And in fact, all of our expression of our emotions as well. And the way that right. we deeply connect through language is also very isolating in a way because we'll never really have a one-to-one alignment. Yeah. I think about that a lot and it makes me kind of sad because I'm, you know, I, but I also don't know that it would be totally satisfying if we did have that. Yeah, but that's the, that's the sort of like illusion of self and being self-contained, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's the, that's the trick. Like that's the game that we're all playing is that like we've all kind of like collectively decided to, to sort of like have this collective delusion of a giant collection of individuals. Whereas I wonder if we actually changed our language, like changed some of the grammar of our language, if we could create more fluidity around like collective experiences. I think so, because I think there's evidence in history of certain civilizations that, that did that, like their, their language was more inclusive and, you know, they, they thought of themselves more as a whole as, as opposed to separate units. And I think right. it's, uh, I think it is portrayed in the language. Um, sure. so, so probably, I don't know how we get back to that. You know, you'd have to do a lot of sort of simplifying and maybe generalizing, but I think that at least conceptually, that makes sense. You could, you could find a way back to unity through language. Mm. Um, but I don't know that we're destined to do that because we seem to be into dividing rather than uniting. Like our, the human race seems to be all into delineating and differentiating, you know? Yeah. I mean, I always sort of wonder if like the idea of private property can coexist with, you know, whatever this thing that we're gesturing at, you know, with like a sense of a cohesive whole. Um, But I think that paradox is always going to exist. And in fact, it's maybe like language itself that's kind of keeping us from understanding how to hold that contradiction in our hands at once. Um, Probably so, because we we say this is mine and that's yours. And, you know, even even when we're talking about intangible things, you know, our thoughts and our feelings like this, I think this and we, you know, there's there's not a lot of collective uh, you know, grouping of those things. It's always sort of ownership. I have a problem. I have a habit. Things, things like that. Absolutely. Even our sense of self is kind of an extension of private property, oddly. Or, I mean, maybe the other way around, but still, like, it's like, no, no, these are my thoughts. These are my feelings. But, you yeah. know, at the end of the day, your feelings are a consequence of a pretty are a consequence of a finite number of like predispositions to feeling and emotions that each human shares through our like collective genetic configuration.
what has your mom discovered in terms of the, the coding of the mathematical coding of music? Because that Oh, you know, like she, so she talks about music in, a, in kind of a more philosophical way. And she's really interested in, oh man, I feel like you should actually have her on and talk to her about it. Cause I'm just going to butcher some of her thoughts. She's going to listen to this and be like, well, now. <laughs> I'd, love, I'd love to have her on someday if she's, if she's willing, but, but maybe you could just summarize or, or just give a, just, just give a brief statement of what it is so she's really interested in thinking of music as the language of emotions and how it's like one of the best if not the best way to encode consciousness and encode emotions so music doesn't have um an array of like semantic variables it's the most you know, in the sense of like, there's nothing specific to point to that you could apply language to, you know, there are no nouns in it. There are no chairs, tables, lamps, trees, right. like it's the most abstract form of art and expression. And it's the most kind of primitive form of interpretation of the world and not just sound, but music, you know, whereas sound is sound music is a collection of sounds within various um i guess tonalities perhaps and here's where she'll probably bite me because i'm kind of going to butcher this but um um like she'll conceive of music and the tonal force field almost like the force field of gravity where there are certain elements that, you know, within a certain tonality that will be closer or farther away from each other and it will be pulled towards each other. Um, I feel like if I actually go into this, I'm just going to say a lot of dumb things. <laughs> okay. But what I really love about, about her ideas is this, is this sense of like music being able to encode emotions in a way um, that really nothing else can because it is the most abstract form of art. And I think just, just saying that sort of leaves me in the, in the black with, with the science element of it. Um, and also kind of leaves some, some food for thought. And it, and it really actually feeds into, you know, what we've been talking about because without like certain specific literal markers, we don't get stuck in the realm of language and it's, a way in which we can communicate deeply and profoundly without language, but with, you know, hitting all of those emotions. Totally. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, without knowing the science of it, I, I have to say it, it's, I, I mean, there's absolutely something built into it while it's happening, while you're listening, when, you know, when you're making it, it's, there's something emotional. I'd never thought of it as sort of, as being encoded, but it absolutely is. Um, but, and it's also kind of impossible to describe with language and, and the music is what it is. It doesn't need to, it doesn't need an extra explanation. It just is already telling you what it's, what it is. Yeah. And you know, what if that, modality is sort of a window into an understanding of our consciousness you know I because think it, it does I... remove the 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 problematic nature of like literal objects in language totally 
Yeah, I totally think it is. And I, it, I know being a musician, I know that there is no other way for me to access that particular uh, expression of consciousness. Like there's no, there's nothing else that comes close for me. And I like to do, I like visual art and I make some stuff and I like all kinds of creative pursuits, but, but music is the one that, that feeds me in a way that goes beyond all the others by far. Yeah. You're probably in flow state when you're making it, right? Absolutely. And it's, and it's instantaneous. That's what's crazy about it. Like there's no, there is no interpretation necessary. There's no, like, I have to do this in order to get to this place. I just start making the array of sounds and, and it starts to happen. And I don't set out to make a, a song that's happy or sad or, or carrying any particular tone, but it, it begins to happen through me without me knowing what's going on. And then I just follow it. And it's amazing. It's one of the best things I can, you know, it's maybe the best thing in life for me because it's so pure. There's no, uh, I mean, I, lo I love lots of aspects of life and I like sharing with other people, but there's something about music that sort of takes away the need for any of that. Like there's, you know, I think it's because it doesn't need to be explained. It just is happening. Beautiful. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. both my parents would agree with you. Oh, good. Both are because they're both obsessed with the piano in a really good way. Yeah, that's cool. Beautiful. I mean, I think like you know, whatever gets you into that flow state is where you should be for as much of your life as possible. I totally agree, and and I don't. Yeah, I'm not saying it should only be music for everyone, and you know, obviously for you, painting. It, well, it's at least one of those ways, but um, definitely. It's I where time that, stops existing and you stop encroaching on your own life. It's like yourself is no longer like the primary experience. I think this is what meditators would say in some ways as well. Right. Like, it's like, yeah, you're just, um, you're no longer encumbered by self. You can just experience like this non-dual consciousness. And ideally that's where you want to get. Totally. I, I agree. And I, I mean, that's what music is for me. It's a form of meditation among other things, but I've never been good at just a sitting meditation. Um, and I don't know that I need to, I, cause I have this other way of getting there. Yeah. Um, but I agree that every, every human should have something like that for themselves because otherwise you're constantly lost in the, you know, trying to convey a message that you can't quite get across, you know, yeah. you're trying, you're, and you're lost like, in oh, thought. Yeah. Your own brain. You can't, you can't receive your <laughs> own brain signals because you're blocking them with some weird story, you know? Totally. Yeah. Like how are you going to find all the ideas in the universe that, that are, you know, suitable for you to collaborate with if your antenna is super dusty? Yeah, exactly. Or broken. <laughs> Yeah, we're broken. Exactly. Yeah, or you haven't yeah. found it at all. Like maybe it's maybe it's hidden. I mean, yeah, I think yeah. that we're all. I think every. I think conscious beings are antennas. I think that we are. We all have that capacity. We just need to find it and attune to whatever works. And um, 
I think part of why people can't do that is because they're taught from very early not to be open to that, those sorts of things, those intuitive, intuitive, uh, you know, feelings. And uh, they're often sort of squashed by society that any sort of free expression or wandering, you know, aimless wandering is not really allowed. Aimless but, uh, wandering is, is the seed of all things wonderful in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful for all of the time that I spent daydreaming as a child, I think. That's awesome. Yeah. Because everybody. Now, uh, yeah. I mean, now I'm basically a professional daydreamer. That's pretty amazing to be able to say that and, and, and mean it. It's true. Um, it's, it's extraordinary. I'm very grateful to be able to say that. So many people don't get a single minute in any given day. To do I that. completely agree. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of heartbreaking. It is, and it should be fostered. I think in society, it should be something that we all cherish and and encourage and cultivate. Could not agree more. But yeah. we, but, and I think some people get that, and they know the importance of it. I think you know a lot of teachers and a lot of. You know, people who work with children understand that. Actors understand that. And, you know, anybody who's sort of in their art gets how important that is. But anyone who isn't or who calls, you know, doesn't think of themselves as a creative uh, struggles with it because they're trying to find it through other means. and, And they're all sort of stilted, structured frameworks that don't work for that. Yeah. And, you know, I think it can be found through a lot of different avenues. You don't necessarily have to have one thing that you are compulsively doing in this like borderline psychotic possessed manner. Cause I think anybody who really just does one thing all day long, it's not, that's not the sort of template that everyone needs to strive for. I think you can, you can also do so much wandering into multiple different avenues. You don't even need to have a passion necessarily. You just have to like give yourself the time and the space to not be burdened by your own thoughts and by your own identity, which is a hallucination. Right. Right. I think a lot of people are terrified of that idea though. Yeah. Yeah. They're just afraid to to be to let it be what it is and and see what comes. Oh, because it is terrifying. I mean, you just have to feel the fear, but do it anyway. Yeah. So maybe it's courage that needs to be cultivated and encouraged. And, you know, yeah, and I think everybody, you know, I wish that we lived in a society where you know most of its people weren't slaves and everyone had an a free time to like calibrate their mind for what's actually important.
so, okay, here's a question for you. Have you ever read Aldous Huxley's Island? I haven't. But you've read Brave New World. I have, yeah. Yeah. So I want, I mean, I feel like, so Island is basically like a utopian counterpoint to the dystopian Brave New World. Okay. Um, and it's a fascinating book that, in my opinion, should be read back to back with Brave New World um, because in a sense it kind of offers this really brilliant, not not solution, but just a thought experiment to a culture that doesn't um, prioritize self and pleasure and prioritizes um, uh, collective mythology initiation and also um, individual self-expression and science together and creates this like really beautiful um, initiation practice that's ritualized um, and you know at least in the book it's 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 um, presented as like really intellectually stimulating and really liberating and it's kind of like a full body full sensory um, like fully self-expressed experience of of living in um in like a very well organized healthy society um you know as opposed to brave new world which is just like a soma run um zombie collective effectively (laughs) right Right? um but you know, I just wonder what like an island version of like Ex Machina is. Like, if Ex Machina is Brave New World, then like what is like the island version of us just being able to, um, you know, apply some of these ideas that clearly have a really deranged dark side, um, but you know, not necessarily needing to live in that. Like there's a way to use drugs that isn't completely deranging, right? Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, and there are various different kinds of compounds, some of which turn people into zombies, some of which, you know, for example, liberate people from their fear of death and allow them access into spaces where they can process their trauma and come out really you know, empowered and excited to be alive again. Right. Have you, have you done ayahuasca speaking of? Yeah, actually I have many times. Yeah. Nice. Over the years. Yeah. And that was, was that your experience of it? Was it? it Oh, I've had many different experiences of it for sure. It really ran the gamut. Um, Uh Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, um, I got my parents to do it as well. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I have a whole community of friends that does. I haven't done it in a long time. It's It's been a very powerful, beautiful experience, for sure. I mean, it, it's hard to say that I would encourage everyone to do it. Um, but, you know, I think if your neurochemistry does allow for it, um, and if you don't have um, a kind of a family history of mental illness or or anything like that that might make you fear any consequences which you know i don't i don't know that much about it then then it's a very interesting thing to do i mean it's it would be 
so exciting to see all of our world leaders sit in a ceremony like that and experience that feeling of I would love that. I've of, always felt that. at I one to... moment. Yeah. Like yeah. where you can actually contain that contradiction of like progress and you know, a, a, like collective well-being and and the sort of um you know feeling yourself but not prioritizing that as the only lens through which to view the world, the universe, the planet, even your own consciousness. Right. Yeah, I've often won I've often uh, wished for you know mu- mushrooms to come into the lives of many uh, sort of people who are stuck in the self and stuck in the arrogance and self-importance and you know it just would do wonders for for those brains oh i agree i mean these are such beautiful compounds they're kind i i mean i consider this our birthright you know these are things that come out of the earth are such a beautiful experience. They allow us in a culture that doesn't have a sort of collective initiation practice, like they actually allow you to initiate yourself into the collective human experience in a way that is very difficult otherwise. I mean, of course we find other rituals and other communities and you can have that sense of, you know, connection and awareness without it. I'm not saying this is like the only door through which you can enter, but wow, is it a beautiful and profound and just like extraordinary and exciting way to enter into it. You know, like why wouldn't you want to experience that, that like, insane panoply of facets of your own mind right and not just the human experience but the plant experience the, the yeah. you know, just like the consciousness as, as a fluid state you get to yeah. just be a part of it it's pretty insane yeah it's it's so it's so wonderful i really do i really do hope that at some point it it becomes a much more kind of, you know, casual and prevalent thing in our culture that, that doesn't have so much like kind of stigma attached to it and certainly legality issues. I mean, you know, like um, Paul Stamets is doing a lot of amazing work around like non-psychedelic mushrooms and their, and their health benefits. Like um, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, I think has been incredibly culturally useful because he's come out of a different realm of science where he wields a lot of kind of power and respect. And then he's managed to open up a conversation for people who really otherwise wouldn't want to talk about this in a way that's, that's, that's like very reasonable and legitimate. (laughs) He's kind of like snuck it in, (laughs) Um, which I think is really like beautiful and admirable. Yeah, it's great. And it is yeah. starting to spread in the culture. I mean, it's it's on, I heard somebody on Sam Harris's podcast recently yeah. about right. it. It's, like, it's becoming a lot more acceptable in the mainstream. And, yeah. um, and, it and might also, you know, like Joe Rogan, who has like a gazillion people following him, is like constantly talking about his trips and him like sitting in a float tank and, you know, right. it, it just like getting super high and writing down all of his like wild thoughts. It, it, this is, it, it, we just need to normalize all of this and stop drinking so much alcohol. <laughs> totally. totally. <laughs> yeah, alcohol needs to go away and all these other things 
should take its place. Yeah, I mean, like, haven't people realized that there's just, like, way more interesting, like, stuff to do? Like, there are so many cool compounds out there that are very much worth exploring. It, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame that it's not easier um, to just step into that space, particularly because there's so much fear around it. You know, I mean, I don't know, psychedelics give me an enormous amount of anxiety, but I think if you create a, a, a context where it's safe um, and, and legal <laughs> and, you know, like um, you don't, you're not caught up in a bunch of like irrelevant and bad mythology about how you're never going to come back from this psychedelic trip because you've been fed a bunch of like fake news false science about how these compounds work and you've got all this anxiety when you first start doing them when you're really young i mean all of that is nonsense nonsense i mean the the ld50 on lsd is like effectively in indefinite you know like it will not kill you it's not neurotoxic like we have enough science on this like let right. people run these experience like these ex- experiments damn it <laughs> totally well leave the guys at johns hopkins alone and let them do their thing well if we if if knowing what how toxic alcohol is and it's totally. the most accessible and most legal of of all drugs uh there's obviously some confusion about what you know what's right and what's wrong totally i mean look there's also like pretty good science around these things it's still really difficult to talk about them because i think it freaks people out it really still does i mean it makes it really you start talking to someone who isn't very well educated in the space and they will take all of your accolades achievement education any type of like intelligence or pedigree that they may feel you have and literally chuck it out the window because you just told them that you've done acid right and (laughs) it's you know it's just not a disqualifying factor people certainly shouldn't settle down yeah. Chill out. Just relax. <laughs> stop eating sugar. Stop drinking so much alcohol. Eat and a little mushrooms. Stop watching Reef for Madness. Totally. Oh, I love that. I I watched Reef for Madness at some point when I was like yeah. sixteen or something. I was like, this is extraordinary. I think probably by now more people have watched it high than sober because oh, it became for like sure non negotiable. Yeah. <laughs> In, in in what other form would it be palatable? I mean, like if you actually think about the fact that it was a propaganda film, I mean, that's where it gets really crazy. Totally. And it was uh, produced by, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, The guy, shit, I'm totally blanking. Who are the guy in San Luis Obispo, Hearst, William Randolph Hearst. Oh, right. Man, I'd completely forgotten about that. What and, a weirdo. Well, and the reason th- that I heard was that, you know, he, he was owned... the newspaper business. Right. He owned all the newspapers and he also er- owned the forests that were used to exactly. make the paper. And he didn't want hemp to be an alternative to paper. And it was clear... Oh, my God, that's right. That's and so right. And hence we've demonize the hemp plant which is one of the most extraordinary plants 
yeah, ever. for like a hundred years. It's kind of, it's finally coming back, but it took you can it use took it. So long. Like how yeah. many use cases does hemp have? Probably like thirty at least. It's, 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 I would say it's <laughs> more like in the hundreds. Yeah. yeah, probably. You could probably like build houses out of hemp. You can. People, people <laughs> you could do. Probably like three D print stuff out of hemp. You know I what, Hurst? You and your yeah. castle, man. I don't know. Yeah. I took a tour a through that place at some point. It was just. I did too. Trip. Yeah, it's a what weird a place. Ridiculous experience. <laughs> I mean, there's some cool aspects to it. There's like the yeah. Frank Lloyd Wright room, and there's you know a couple really interesting swimming pools inside and out. And uh, yeah, but it is a ridiculous I mean, a legacy that guy left. He just like was kind of a like a star fucker, and uh, <laughs> and he owned everything. You know, and all these like old growth forests that he was chopping down mm. to make shitty newspapers. Uh, don't be that guy. <laughs> don't be that you know, guy. <laughs> never be William Randolph Hearst if you can help it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, I think we've we've covered some good ground. Do you, is there anything else you had in mind that you wanted to talk about? Oh man, I don't know. Let me check my exhaustive notes. Right. No, no, I don't. <laughs> no. Um, no, this is so much fun. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, we could probably like banter for another couple hours, really. Easily, I think easily. Yeah. But then, we should just like I'm pick random have... topics out of the air and sort of like, um, you know, play like exquisite corpse with right. the podcast. I love that That's game, great. by the way. It's the best. That game is amazing. There, yeah. there probably could be. Well, my podcast is sort of like that. If you go like one episode to the next, it's oh, absolutely, of, I totally feel no, that. It's not really cohesive, other than that we are all people and we're sharing our thoughts and beliefs. And um, but, but yeah, if you that's, start each podcast on the last word of like the previous one and have to like. <laughs> or like the That's last sentence of the previous one that would really be an exquisite corpse moment though because you'd have to like weave it into some kind of like dialogue narrative it would be kind of funny i think that's a really great idea actually <laughs> maybe that could be the one that you start that's there a really you go cool oh my god exquisite corpse maybe my podcast is called exquisite corpse and right. like you know i'll probably just be talking about like creative androgyny the whole time i think that's like the only thing i'm interested in at the moment. it's just <laughs> how would you define that phrase? i don't know i just reread a room a room of one's own and virginia wolf has all these cool ideas about the androgynous mind and you know it makes sense also also because just women were were really not in a good position at that moment and she says that just having her own space and her own small amount of money freed her to actually be creative. And that, um, you know, obviously the mind is this complex place. Like, I do think that there are very clear gender differences. I don't need to go all crazy and pretend that we're actually the same. Um, I think it's beautiful that we are different. Um, yeah. But the creative mind in itself, I think, is so androgynous it's it's fundamentally androgynous it's funny like there's this like this little bit from um from research on music um 
people who play a lot, like for example, the piano, um, people who, who, who have played on a professional level or on a very high amateur level for a long time, their corpus callosum is actually thicker than non-musicians, like non-highly practicing musicians. And so essentially um, the conversation between both hemispheres is more fluid. Like they're more bilateral and women really are cool. more bilateral. So men who play a lot over time, they have this, you know, neurological, neuroanatomical shift. And you can sort of say that the brain becomes, like their brain becomes more feminized, more androgynous. I just think that like things like that, I think are really interesting. I mean, in the no, past, people true. like in the past, people who didn't know me thought that my work was made by a man. I wouldn't necessarily say that now, but I was really flattered. I thought that was kind of funny and fun, and I liked it. <laughs> Did they say why they thought that? I don't know. I guess it's just the feeling, like the energy of it. Somehow, who knows? Yeah. Well, I, I, think I that... wish that we all had pseudonyms at this point. I mean, I, like, I wish it wasn't such like a cult of personality, or maybe there could be just like a hilarious reveal at the end where you're like, "Ta-da! Not thought." <laughs> right. I'm both. Yeah. I'm, I'm so, I mean, I think at this point you really can 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 language it however you want. Yeah. Well, I've always liked the uh, the idea that we have aspects of of each other, like you know, both genders are represented. And because at birth, or rather at conception, it's not clear where it, where it's going to go, right? The the, the, or, the sex organs are the same, and then they they mature. So it it makes sense that it would be biologically coded in there. With you know, we have both. We all have both. We just have different degrees of each. Yeah. All and creatively weirder than we can imagine yeah <laughs> well that's part of what makes it so interesting to be alive is that it's all very bizarre the whole the way we wound up here and what we're doing is all very strange and mysterious yeah just keep like sitting with that mystery <laughs> forever yeah <laughs> <laughs> um well, I would love to keep talking, but I also know that I'm I have to um you know, fit this in a in a frame. This has been awesome. It's been really fun, and I'd be happy to talk to you anytime about any number of any other weird topics. Fantastic. Um, Loved it. So cool. Thank and I um, and I hope to see your paintings in person someday. Please, you know, uh, if you're ever in New York, like drop in. I will for sure. Yeah. Good. I don't get there very often, but you know, I'd love to come do a studio visit and have some conversation and watch you paint. And, uh, great. You're welcome anytime. I keep weird hours. So. Well, I'm, I'm with you there. I'm, I've, uh, I think we're both late nighters. Yeah. And, uh, and these days I'm super easy to find. I mean, I really like, it really is a 12 to 14 hour day every day. Like no joke. So cool. Yeah, well, feel free to call, and I'll, uh, I'm happy to talk off mic, too. Brilliant. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much, Justin. This was great. Thank you, Maria. I really enjoyed it, and um, I will uh, 
I hope hope to keep in touch, and um, I look forward to seeing what you're working on right now when it's available. I can I can make an announcement about it when it when you do the big reveal, if you uh, oh, that'd be if you can be informed. Yeah, totally. Yeah, cool. I'm I'm just gonna stay in this pressure cooker for a few more months and see what I can see what I can bake up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't wait. I can't wait to see it. It sounds really awesome. Cool. Well, well until next time. Until next time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Ciao. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening everyone truly appreciate it that was my new pal maria crane um her first name is spelled as you would think it is her last name crane while it sounds like the bird the big bird that flies and delivers babies um it's actually spelled k-r-e-y-n so mariacrane.com is where you can find her work i really think you should look at it right now uh, you can also find her at maria crane on instagram and through there you could link to her big cartel website and get prints of her work um and stay tuned to those various portals for uh the reveal of her current project which she's working on as we speak probably uh the stuff we talked about at the beginning so um, if you want to get in touch with me, which I would love it if you did, you know, I mean, shoot, I'm just sitting here, just basically sitting here waiting for you to contact me, uh, email at outspokenpodcast.com. And you can also find me on Instagram, outspoken underscore podcast. And I would love it super, super so much if you were to go to whatever platform you listen on and subscribe uh, because that helps people find it in the search. The search engine optimization will be increased if you subscribe. Even if you don't listen, you could still subscribe. Uh, and tell your friends, please. Tell everyone you know. I'm trying to spread the word. I want to connect more humans to one another so that we can be friends and have conversations like these ones and like other ones and so that we can remember that we're all one. And then we can forget all this divisive BS that we're uh, constantly being made aware of. Because that's all a show, and it's nonsense, and we should step away from it and check out, and we should check back in with each other. That's my advice. So on that note, I love you, and I will talk to you soon.